Hey everyone, Justin here with HuntLink by Serviceside. I am joined on the mic today by Mark Haslam of Southeast Wildlife Consulting, and we also have Grant Fisher on with us. What's going on, fellas? Hey Justin, thanks for having me on. Grant, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, thanks for coming on to talk with us today. So we were just Absolutely. talking to Mark uh, here before we uh, jumped on, and um, you know we kind of like you know hey we know it's we know it's February, um, but you know there's really no rest for the wicked. There's always something to do, um, and we wanted to have Mark jump on, um, talk a little bit about his wildlife consulting business, um, and a little bit about itself. So Mark, I'll let you take it away and. Um, kind of start out, I guess, by telling us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll dive into uh, how you got started into hunting. Yeah, sure. I'd um, I'd love to, and, I, and and thank you, Justin and Grant, for having me on the podcast. I, um, it's always great to talk with some new people and um, and get some exposure, and I, and I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, um, I'm in South Carolina, and um, I started Southeast Whitetail Consulting uh, just after Christmas last year. Um, at the at the end of 22, I, I was sitting on that sitting on that idea for a year as far as wanting to do it. Um, a lot of you know what I offer as far as the consulting side for land and wildlife and hunting. Um, I've been doing that stuff for almost 18 years now at our farm in South Carolina. Um, you know, building it from a raw piece of land that had been dog hunted for a long time, decades. They, they were absentee owners. They never stepped foot on the property and kind of built that up to a, um, a, a, a successful QDM story. And um, we were awarded the NDA, National Deer Association Deer Manager of the Year in 2020. And we're going to be hosting the Deer Steward 2 course this August uh, for NDA at our farm. And, um, you know, a lot of what I was doing the farm, I was putting on my Instagram, on my social media. It was just kind of, it was just my outlet to kind of share what we were doing. And that morphed into doing a little bit of writing, um, various articles. And that's when I launched southeastwhitetail.com and then started the podcast about a year later. Um I didn't think I'd start a podcast, but I love talking hunting and I love talking about habitat and wildlife and I like interviewing people and in a lot of those interviews that I'm doing, I it's, you know, I hope the audience takes some, takes stuff out of it, but I'm always taking stuff away. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter if I'm talking to another hunter, just like myself, or if I'm talking to a biologist or a researcher um, or someone in the industry, there's usually something that I'm learning from myself. So a lot of the podcasts I enjoy doing, um, just, just for my own knowledge and entertainment. And, uh, as far as the consulting side, that, that's just a passion of mine, um, uh, that, you know, wraps up hunting, conservation, habitat. And so the, the three focal points, if you will, of Southeast Whitetail is habitat, conservation, and venison. And um, a lot of what I do as far as the consulting side is just just bridging that gap and blending the forestry work. Because if you own land in the south, you're probably growing trees of some 
in some capacity. That's what we do in the South. We have a long growing season, and that's when the best uh, routes to generate income. But when you're growing trees and you're trying to hunt or manage wildlife, a lot of times those don't go hand in hand, and a lot of foresters aren't going to necessarily suggest uh, forestry work and TSI that's conducive or best for wildlife. So I help you know blend those together because my you know my take on the consulting side is this: um, I have a different, a much different background than a lot of other consultants, but. I look at it as this is landowner advice from a landowner and uh, we've been doing this for a long time on our farm and I can help people with, you know, what works and what doesn't work. I mean, what, what worked for me might not work for you, but I've tried a lot of this stuff and I can help people run budgets, you know, run performers, performa, excuse me, um, to help them as a landowner, you know, uh, maintain the farm and be able to pass it down to that next generation. Um, so a lot of that, that perspective, I think I've got a very good handle. It, it can help people from that landowner perspective. You know, Mark, when we first started the uh, podcast today, I wanted to jump in here and, and apologize. I, uh, for some reason, I get dyslexia sometimes with uh, words that start with the same letter. And um, I had whitetail written down here and I'm pretty sure I said wildlife, but uh, thanks for clearing that up. I was actually looking on the site and I was like, I can't believe I did that. Um, but um, so I, we love the same thing. And that's one of the huge reasons why we wanted to get you on, you know, talking with Grant, um, him being also from South Carolina. He has a huge passion for land management and conservation and obviously turkey hunting. Um, but it's something where, you know, getting like-minded people together, I mean, I feel like every time you do a podcast, you learn different perspectives. And like you said, you know, I know growing up hunting, I always had that, well, if you learn this, then this is what it's going to be. And then you learn like, hey, you know, there's a lot of right ways to do something. There's a lot of ways to skin a cat. And, you know, at the end of the day, when you get those different perspectives, because, um, and then obviously time helps. So, you know, the person, especially if they've had the land for a while, they you know, kind of know how things work there. Cause I've seen one side of the river do something completely different than the other side of the river. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely nice to take all those different perspectives, put them together. And I'm glad you're enjoying doing podcasts. You know, I, I never really thought I would enjoy them either, but when you, when you get to talk to like-minded people, um, and, and see those different perspectives, it definitely makes it worthwhile for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Now, Mark, how did you get started out in hunting? Um, I mean, it's there's really no great story behind. It. I mean, really, just um, that traditional uh, upbringing as a young kid. Um, my father was was already hunting. He started hunting after he got out of college. He started to hunt with some friends and then got into it just very quickly. He was introduced and just was off the races. And then I was introduced, I mean, as soon as I was probably able to walk. I The earliest memory I can remember is, is I was a, I was kindergarten age, so I guess I was like five. I think kindergarten's around five. And uh, just wearing one of those just old school camo insulated jumpsuits in the woods <laughs> with my dad. Um trying to quail hunt you know just one of those like michelin man where you can't really even move <laughs> yeah three thousand uh, but yeah 
<laughs> yeah, so I mean that's that's how it started, and then it, you know it got to where I was sitting with Dad um, when he was on the deer stand, just sitting there with him, and then they got to where I was, you know, had a you know had a rifle, started kind of shooting a twenty two, shooting a two forty three. And then when I was shooting that 243, practicing, that's when I was, you know, ready to shoot. And and then you kill your first deer, and you start sitting by yourself, and that's that's. And then the rest is history, I guess. You know, we definitely, uh, you know, I always, I know when you said it the traditional way, but you know that kind of traditional way is kind of going away. I talked to a lot of people that yeah. are getting in hunting in their like 20s and 30s, and I'm like. I mean, I, I kudos to them because I, you know, growing up, we kind of learn all the stuff you're not supposed to do because you're getting scolded most of the time. Yeah. You know, quit move. I took my brother's kid, and I bet you we told him to stop moving like 80 times. <laughs> We're like, you got to stop moving, bud. Uh, I mean, it was so funny because he'd even pretend to move. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, man, our parents and grandparents and uncles and stuff were so so patient because <laughs> i'm out there sometimes and i'm just like come on man we'll just sit there <laughs> you know just sit still um but being a kid you know it's more about learning and stuff but i love that traditional way and hopefully we do keep getting more people to do the traditional way but if not well them getting in just like your dad did there's there's always a way in that's right yeah you're, you're... <laughs> it's funny you say that because it, as soon as i said traditional i was thinking in my head like well well, maybe I shouldn't use that word traditional, but yeah, it, um, I would consider it traditional. Yeah. I would, I would consider yeah, that falling in there. I, well, you're right. I mean, I would consider it too. It's unfortunate sometimes because there's a lot of people, like you said, that if they, and I see it like with my peers and, and people that I've taken hunting and we've done some disability hunts and some mentor hunts, but yeah, I mean, if you're not, if you're a kid and you're not introduced by someone in your family, like a father, mother, uncle, whatever, neighbor, then you might not get introduced. I mean, because it's especially in the South where there's so much private land. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's why I like it. It is kind of cool to see. Um, it's not kind of. It's very cool to see a lot of these adult onset hunters that just at it, it, whatever point in their life, maybe in college, maybe out of college, or maybe they're older, and they just realize, like, the the nutritional value there is in wild game, and they want to do it. But it's definitely a big uphill battle. I should say uphill battle, but there's challenges because you just – there's not great public land everywhere. And then there's so many hurdles of, you know, firearm safety. Just it's It's not like you're going to go to – you know, a sporting goods store and buy a set of, you know, golf clubs and a golf bag. And then you go, you know, figure out how to play. It's right. There's just so much more that goes, that goes into it. Yeah, absolutely. And to kind of turn into more about management practices, I can get you to do a little overview of your farm and how it was when you got it and just kind of habitat in general and the practices you use to get it to where it is now. Yeah, Grant, I, I, uh, we uh when we first got that farm um we acquired it in 2006 it, it was um i've always described it as a raw piece of land and i know it's you know a lot of people might not understand might not know what what i'm referring to when i say raw but it was completely undeveloped there were no structures on it back in the day a long time ago there were but you know no no running water no power and uh they were all absentee owners and so uh 
the current owners of that farm they were they were the descendants of i believe the original plantation that was there you know a long long time ago and they had passed it down to where to the point where that family really had no ties to that land um and this land had been chopped up so many times where i think it was like 12 or 14 different people had to sign off on that deed when they when it closed in fact like we had there was one of those situations where you you know you're hiring an attorney to like track down and make sure there's no other heirs that might come out of the woodwork but i say all that because they had no ties to it the their forester um was working on a making so i mean shoot three hours away and it was in a dog hunting club um which nothing wrong with that i mean it's it's legal um, but I say that because typically when you when you run dogs for deer, you're probably not practicing a whole lot of QDM, quality deer management. You certainly can, but it's extremely hard to identify a buck, a size of buck, an age of a buck, or even a doe in a very small buck when they're running at full speed. So, um, you know, there was, there was some farmland uh, fields that were leased. Uh, so, so that's a good rotation of crops, but that was it. You know, no food plots. Um, I think the guys, the hunt club, were just dump, dumping out corn, uh, probably to keep the deer on the site. And that was it. And um, you know, it took us, it took us a while. It took us a while to really kind of get some traction and get some momentum going. And a lot of that came from we just didn't have that much experience, and we and we were coming from being in a hunt club. We were in a hunting club in Jasper County, South Carolina. Uh, real deep in the low country from the time I was probably in preschool all the way until we bought this farm. So we were used to hunting a different, you know, being invited to people's properties to hunt friends and family. And then in our hunt club. So we weren't used to doing really any habitat work, Um, you know, within a hunting lease, you can do some stuff, but you're not really doing much. So to, to answer your question is about as far as when things really start to get going, I would say it was it was our first forestry uh, project. We we clear cut some sections that had ice damage, and we thinned some out. And then once we did that first forestry project, got to open up the canopy, uh, clear cut some sections, and really start to diversify the farm, um, and diversify the the age class of pine trees because a lot of them were roughly the same age and so once we started to break up that monoculture of pine trees that's when we started to see things develop and then we were seeing and watching how when you diversify your your habitat pine trees clear cuts the thickets where you burn when you burn the tsi work opening a canopy thinning all of that stuff all aids into slowly figuring out how your deer utilize your property, how they move, where they move, where, you know, where they bed, when, where they're going to be each time of year. And of course, it, you know, we don't know everything about a deer herd, but you start to learn more about it. And uh, I mean, that's just, that's kind of led us to where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. All those practices or stuff that people can do anywhere in the country they are and that are help make your property better. Now, I was going to get you a little bit to talk about what people might be doing this time of year, kind of managing for invasive species and burning and your take on that. Yeah, I mean, it's 
we were talking a little bit about that. I know before we started, started to record and yeah, that this time of year is like, this is like my favorite time of the year to be out in the woods. Um, because <laughs> it's not hot. I mean, I'm saying that it's 77 degrees right now. So, um, you know, it can be warm, it can be cold, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be, you know, drenching sweat with humidity, hot, and a lot of snakes are MIA right now, same with gators. Um, but with, with it still being a winter month, um, there's so much exposed land. There, there's so many bare trees. There's so much dead vegetate, dead vegetation that you can see so much better. You can see trails, you can see bedding better. Um, you know, if, if you go around like a wetland area or a swamp, you're going to see it much better because a lot of vegetation is down. And, um, if you, if you can get around a wet area, you can, you can, you can pick up on tracks. Um, you can pick up, you know, tracks should be much more significant. Um, as far as, you know, visibility, how long, you know, ruts and just that, that, that kind of cattle trough type, uh, trails can really show themselves and that can help people identify bedding especially if they can identify some bedding that was used towards the end of the hunting season you know maybe they're not you know maybe that's not bedding for the spring and summer but they're going to go right back into it uh during the rut during that late part of the season um as far as habitat work burning i mean it's it's always a good time to burn and you know uh in the early years of our of our farm you know, we were, you know, trying to, you know, get our fire break set up and then burn during maybe February or March. But you've got to, burning is a very long process from start to finish because you only have so many good days to burn, only so many days where you, the burner, can actually do it, with, you know, based on work and family or just life. And then that has to sync up with a good weather day, with the wind, with the temperature, and being able to get a burn you know burn permit um so it's best to go and you know identify where you want to burn you know right now there's some areas that are too wet to burn so we can't do those right now so put those off a little bit later go go ahead and cut your fire breaks get those ready to roll if your tractor needs some tune-up work get it tuned up get it ready and can you know get all your stuff ready and get a plan together so that when you have, when you have a burn day you can jump on it um, besides that, you had mentioned invasives, Grant. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is an excellent time. I was at the farm, I think, two weeks ago, and I just went to town on a chainsaw. Um, I We've got a, a number of sections where sweet gums have just exploded. And um, I did do hack and squirt because these clusters were pretty big. I mean, they were decent size little pockets of just pure gum tree so i wanted to cut them all down get them out and spray the stump so they don't sprout just get it out and those i know some people will cut a gum and then not spray it so the deer can eat some of those sprouts but i'm going to convert these and, and, and try to make these little gum gum heads gum clusters around some of these fields completely cut them down spray them and then convert it to I'm going to try to convert it in, in, in some quail habitat, try to bring in some of this fallen trees, cr- create some structure, get some sunlight in there, get some grass, maybe some briars growing. And um, 
and then you know besides that i i would suggest to people that they start getting a get, getting a plan for this year forestry work you know do they are they looking at cutting or thinning if so engage with your forester or engage with a timber buyer start to get that going because that's another long process and then food plots food plots budgets um is someone looking at doing protein pellets or whatever it is start planning for it right now and start budgeting out how much you're going to spend and i see it a lot with people where they don't they don't run budgets you know they they kind of loosely know how much they're spending on protein or corn or food plot seed but they never really totaled it up and sometimes you can be shocked either way sometimes you're not spending as much as you thought you were and sometimes you're spending a lot more than what you thought and there's times like like for us you know when you when you when you run budgets like that you start to understand what what what's the best bang for your buck like for us we stopped planting corn we used to plant a lot more corn and then started to kind of scale it back we were planting kind of corn strips but corn gets so expensive by the time you fat by the time you factor in the fertilize the fertilizer cost so we just so, so we just did away with that and and it found a better alternative that's better for the soil, the wildlife, and the bank account instead of planting corn. So it's it's now is just I I think a, a great time to dive into all that stuff because deer season's over, duck season's over, turkey season's getting close and it's around the corner, but it's not quite here yet. So this is all definitely stuff I, I would say people should, you know, jump on. And a lot of what I mentioned, people can do from their house. You know, they don't have to be at their farm, you know, on site doing this stuff. A lot of what I said, you can be doing and planning from your house. You know, that's one thing I've I've learned uh, from doing, you know, so many of these podcasts, especially when it comes to this time of year. And, you know, me and Grant usually get together, me and a couple other guys usually get together and we start getting ready for the turkey slash, you know, um, growing season and um, kind of group them in together. But uh, that's one thing that, that I've noticed is, you know, it's this time of year is when everyone's like, hey, like right when everyone's run down, season's ending, you're starting to pack everything up. That's when you really want to dive into that land management and get it rolling because that's when a lot of your, your work's going to be done. And like you said, the perspective of how you can see it now and everything when like the dust is settled. Um, is going to be a little bit different than, you know, another time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, I, I agree with you completely. It, it's, you know, I, I've said this before, um, but it's uh, like, I would never, I would never choose to end hunting season. Like I obviously, I, I, I don't have a choice in that. It's set by the state, but I say that because if, if it's deer season, I'm hunting. You know, as long right. as we have tags to tags to fill, I'm hunting, um, and I don't really want to do anything else. I mean, a lot of what I just said, I don't want to do. I don't want to walk through the woods. I don't want to walk through bedding because I'm hunting and I'm trying right. to keep pressure down. So when the hunting season is over, this is when I mean I love this time of year because I'm not trying to like you know mess with our deer or put pressure on them, but I like the fact that that I don't mind if I'm driving at five o'clock by a field that I would never drive by during, you know, the other 10 months out of the year, this time of year, I don't think it's that bad. If you, you know, if you do drive around the deer, I wouldn't say like really pressure them too hard, but 
it, it doesn't bother me. And the other side to it is, that, you know, if you're in the South, like what I was like, like what I was mentioned before, um, about that second third week in March, which is just around the corner. I mean, we're talking like, I don't know what four or five weeks. We're gonna start seeing green up. I mean, I've had pollen on my truck all all this week. Not much, but I've already had pollen on my truck this week. So once that green up starts, it just fires up. And the next thing you know, the wood is closed up. And you can still do a lot of that stuff, but like like identifying sweet gums. They're a lot easier to see in the woods right now than they will be in two months from now. So there's all there's there really is a big advantage to kind of jump on this for, you know, for the heat and, uh, and the woods start to close up. So I have a question for you, but us talking about when you were talking about evasive species, I know this is going to kind of, it's almost, I'm going to put it in the same category, but obviously it's different, but um, I want to attack this in here as a question I was just thinking of was, do you guys have any problem with, with hogs in your area being in South Carolina or? Like, is that a part that, of the battle of your land management? Thankfully for us, we don't. Okay. Um, I say thankfully. I, I love hunting hogs. Um, I did a lot of that growing up, um, and I love stalking them. I mean, because in certain areas, you can legitimately stalk a pig. I mean, oh, you can't yeah. do that with it. You can't do that with a deer. So I love hunting them, and I love eating them. And there's some, there's some very good some very good meat if you handle it the right way but no we we don't which is really a good thing because we have a lot of agriculture um a lot of farmland all in our area and that would not be very conducive right, i'm right. kind of surprised that we don't because we had we have the savannah river not very far away we have the edisto river a lot closer and there's all kinds of natural spring head creeks i'm surprised we don't we've gotten i've gotten some boars over the years on trail camera and we've seen a pig or two like once in a blue moon but they are typically just passing through and it's usually this time of year um when some of those rivers i mentioned or swamps have are real high and they flood and then it just kind of pushes some pigs out and they just basically just kind of follow water until they find the next landing spot okay you know and, and i was thinking of that because see we have we have a huge hog my camera is blowing up right now we've got so many hogs down here where i'm at it's it's unreal and, and when you were talking about the land management i were doing the first thing i thought of was i was like it almost sounds like you're, you're almost saying the perspective of you didn't have hogs so i was just kind of seeing if if i was like my guess was right because uh, for some reason i uh those i mean they really they really put the brake on big time with really anything you're trying to do i mean you know, especially when they get as bad as what we have them down here. I mean, they're they're thick. I we killed five last week, and I feel like the camera has five new ones on it right now. Like it's yeah, it's insane. Yeah, yeah. pigs are a problem for sure. So, um, can, let's talk a little bit about uh, how you use uh, food plots and natural food sources. How do you kind of uh, go about that with your property? Um, like more of the verses, I guess, would be, I guess, the question I'm going for. For food plots and the natural food sources. Yeah, like how do how do you utilize them when you're property? Um, do you use them kind of together, or you know, do they kind of cancel each other out? Or, um, I I mean, ideally, in a perfect world, um, you know, someone's farm has both. You want your planted, you know, man-made 
destination food plots um, or ag fields. I mean, ag fields for me are like a bonus if you happen to have some farmland around you. But, you know, you need your food plots and then you need your you, and then you've got to have, in my opinion, that that natural vegetation, that natural forage. It, it just, you know, the more you have for deer, turkey and quail, the better off you're going to be. If you, you know, if you only had deer feeders like corn feeders and you only hunted over feeders very quickly, deer, deer, deer pick up on feed. I mean, they, they know they're still going to feed under it, but they learn really quickly. Like, Hey, you know, at certain times in the morning and afternoons, there's some danger around here. Same thing with food plots. So if you only had food plots, depending on how, how, how big your property is, how many people hunt it. And the rotation of the pressure, food plots can sometimes people get frustrated about food plots because they put in a lot of time and energy and money to, you know, get the food plot growing. Sometimes it takes a lot. Right. And then they hunt it and maybe they don't have the results. You know, maybe they don't see that big buck stepping out at ten minutes before dark in the back corner like they do on the T V shows. Um, and that's when that natural forage the natural vegetation that's when those native options come into play to where when you create and maintain bedding for your deer it's not that you're really knowing exactly where they sleep and where they're going to be because you because you you never know that for the most part but you create the bedding thickets maintain those options so you know where they're going to be or at least you know where a lot of does are going to concentrate and then you have your destination food source your food plot wherever that might be in the property from your bedding and so if it's a nice size field let's just say it's it's a big field of soybeans you know that soybean field is going to get a lot of visitors every single night for the most part deer in there utilizing it throughout the night well you know you can you can hunt it in the in in the evenings but but that's going to probably dry up at some point when you mix in some some thin timber you thin it and you burn it, or maybe you do some early successional disking, whatever it is to promote that native seed bank, you're getting all kinds of native vegetation that's popping up and growing. And it's and you can put that in, you can grow that native seed bank within pine trees. So there is some shade in there, but you can grow that kind of uh, vegetation which is great deer forage and it's great for quail. Most of it's great for quail and turkey as well. But I say it's it's shaded because you can't grow soybeans, you know, within pine trees, obviously. I mean, you can diss some fire breaks or some skid, skid trails, but that's not going to yield very good. That That's not going to yield a good plant seed food plot. And something might sprout up, but the deer are going to wipe it all out in a soybean plant or something else might not even make it to the seed before it's eaten down for before it's snipped off but you can burn a couple you know a couple acres or a couple you know a couple dozen acres pretty quickly and then you're creating that natural food plot and so that can give you that can relieve some of the pressure from your food plots then you can start to hunt right on top of the bedding where they're coming out of the bedding then they're popping in those thin pine trees where, where you burned or you dissed. You got some native vegetation. You also have the cover. You know, there's some height to that. There, there's maybe two to four feet, maybe more of that height 
from briars and everything else because you burn because you dissed and that height gives the deer security to feel safe in daylight because when they get the food plot depending on what you have in your food plot your food plot might not be all that high and it might be a big field and, and deer without question deer feel much more at ease i read this once by dr valerius geist and it was something like you know deer feel the most at ease when they can be when they can disappear within like two or three bounds it's like wherever they are if they can bound off you know two or three times and they're gone so like a lot of food plots they can't do that they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna take off but it's gonna take a little bit but in those pine trees you know they can be gone quicker and then when you mix in the hunting of the food plots and the in the and the you know native seed seed bank you can create a, a very good rotation of your pressure. So like so much of hunting, in my opinion, it goes down to the human factor. It's not really so much about like what the deer, I mean, you know, when you understand deer biology and, and, and how and why they move and what they need in life on a daily basis, you can kind of figure out what they're going to be doing. But it's the human, in my opinion, it's the human presence, the human pressure and of course, of course, there's a lot of other factors that can go into it. You know, I'm not excluding predators or wild dogs or, or your neighbor or four wheelers or whatever else. But for the most part, it's really, you know, the deer pattering the hunters and then, you know, working around them. And that's why that's why I mentioned that, because hunters can be patterned so easily on food plots. I plan them, and I plan them every single year, and I hunt over them. But you, you, you just got to understand that hunters can be very easily patterned on food plots. Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of times people can't don't pay enough attention to how they use their food plots and hunt them and either hunt around the sides of them or directly over them and stand selection, all that different kind of stuff. And I'll get you to go a little bit about energy or early season hunting techniques i know in south carolina we start in august i struggle a lot seeing deer in the mornings when it's so hot and sometimes i won't even hunt in the mornings i just hunt evenings i know you have a good minute of success hunting in the morning time during the heat let's just go about how you hunt that time of year yeah you know i uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I, like early season um i love i mean maybe it's Maybe it's just that I – maybe it's I love everything about deer. I mean, a minute ago I said I love this time of year, and I was about to say I love early season. You know, So I guess I just love everything about being in the deer woods. <laughs> but I do really like that late summer where it's like sometime in June. It's like towards the end of June when you get bucks on camera, you can start – you can tell who's going to be a shooter or not. You know, you might not know exactly how many inches it's going to be, but you can tell by the by the base, and it, it, it can start to fork out. So that's always fun, you know, when you're trying to, you know, get those bucks on camera in June, July, and then figuring out, you know, where you think they're going to be. And sometimes, sometimes you can pattern deer fairly easily, and other times it's, it's not the case. I mean, sometimes, you know, I... I'll get a buck on camera a couple of times and then that's it. And I just, he hadn't disappeared. I don't think, but he just he stopped going from my camera. So um, early season, what I like to do is it, it, it goes back to exactly what I was just talking about. 
um, is just knowing, having an understanding where they're going to bed in the summer, you know, on that summer schedule. Um, because where bucks are bedding, and I say bucks because early season in South Carolina, um, in the lower half, we can start um, hunting bucks August 15th. And it's bucks only for the first month. September fifteenth, it's 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 either sex until January first, and that's just to give fawns more time with their mama does before um, you know they've kind of weaned off that weaned off that milk. But if you can identify where in general bucks bed, is it like this swamp or that swamp or maybe this thicket? Have an idea there, and then where they're going to feed, and like where they're going to feed. A lot of times. A lot of times it's it's not hard to figure out as far as if you have food plots or ag fields. Sometimes it's more difficult, but I like to hunt bucks more in the morning, like what like what you mentioned, Grant, where I back up all the way to the bedding site, which when I say bedding site for me at our farm is primarily gonna be a young pine thicket. Um, or like a cutover, um that uh, has been clear cut and then just left to grow up wild and natural. A couple, a couple of our, a couple of our neighbors have done that. And, you know, um, that creates great bedding. So as long as you can understand, as long as you can identify warm season, hot weather bedding, which hot weather bedding, cold weather bedding in the South are two different places. And so deer need to have airflow. They need to have shade from, from the heat and, a lot of it really is airflow, but I back up to the bedding sites. Um, and some of, the, some of those bedding sites, I mean, they can be maybe 10, 15 acres or 20 acres or two acres. I mean, sometimes, like, I definitely might see a deer coming back into it at first light, but I might not. I might be set up bad, but I have an idea about where they're going to be feeding at night, whether it's ag fields or food plots. And then I basically just cut them off going back to that bedding at first light. Mm -hmm. And I, and a lot of times when those bucks, you know, they're, they're of course still in bachelor groups, but when they leave the, the ag field and food plot, sometimes they can stick around um, into legal shooting hours in those open, open fields. And I know that because maybe I see them or maybe I get them on trail camera. Mostly I'll get them on camera and I'm, because I'm not hunting those big fields but they typically will disappear out of this big fields at first light, but they're now back in the woods and they're now back in maybe some of those thin, thin timber sites that I was just talking about that have been thin and burned. And if you can, if you can strategize and put those locations on top of bedding sites, then you know, the deer is going to leave that, that open ag field or food plot before first light because they're smart. And they're going to leave that field, and then they're going to slowly, very slowly, take their time working through the woods and going back to bed. And then that's my plan to to, uh, to uh, catch them there. I do hunt afternoons, but I, I I don't know what it is, but in the mornings I tend to see more bucks uh, taking their time back to bedding at first light. And maybe it's because does or, you know, does that time of year, they're, they're, they're knee deep in like running a doe group. I mean, they've got their, they've got new fawns of their own that were just born and they've got fawns from last year. They're still in their group 
and they're probably feeding a lot earlier at night, and they're probably going back to bed a lot early at night. That's just a that's that's just a thought I have. I have no proof of that or research, but I tend to see more bucks and less does in the morning. And the reason why that's a benefit is because you can't shoot does. And if you're trying to shoot a mature buck and not a young buck, then in the afternoons, the, the majority of the deer you're going to see are going to be does and small bucks. And those are the ones you can't shoot. So then you're, you're more likely, at least how I hunt, I'm more likely to be winded or to be, um, you know, busted by deer that I'm not looking to shoot as opposed to waiting for mature bucks. A lot of times mature bucks, at least where I am, they're not really stepping out until the very last bit of light, you know, in a field or somewhere, or maybe stepping out of their bedding, last bit of light. And by that point, you probably have a lot of does and a lot of small bucks all around you. And then you're being busted combined with, these are, these are the first hunts of the year. So the deer aren't educated again and they're relaxed they're they're at ease and all of a sudden you're going in there for the first time in six months and you're going to educate and you're going to startle a lot of deer so um, that's another reason why i like the mornings best gotcha yeah i definitely need to hunt more mornings than i do in the early season because a lot of times i just haven't had the best luck during them so i wait until the evenings and like you said you see a lot more deer but the deer you want to shoot is going to be in the last few minutes of light yeah Yep. And another thing I was going to get you to go over, I've seen this year where you've used a decoy some and had success with that, and I've never even really considered or thought about doing it down here in the south. I was going to get your thoughts on that and how it works for you. Yeah, I, um, I've got a um, – um, it's, it's an older carry light decoy that it came with antlers, you know, like a little like small eight-point, maybe, maybe like a two-year-old buck antlers – you can put on, you can take them off, and, and that's dough. Uh, I've used it with an antler. I've used it with really like one antler or two antlers. I've read that if you use it with one antler, it can look a lot less intimidating for another buck, and they're more likely to come up and, you know, challenge the decoy, so to speak. I, I've never really had any luck with the um, using the using the antlers on the decoy, except for like real small. I mean, talking about like one-year-old bucks. Um, and that's usually with rattling. So I, I, I've always kind of thought it's like, I get that you're trying to entice a mature buck with another buck, but like, that's, I guess for me, I mean, everyone's different. Every, I mean, I, the, the past number of years, I've, I've had some better success rattling and trying to, you know, you know, rattling but i feel like rat rattling is about timing and i think i finally kind of identified when the bucks in my area respond to rattling better but i i bring up rattling because if you in my opinion if you're using a buck decoy you're really hoping that you're catching a particular buck that is in the right mood to respond to another buck to another buck meaning like you you can you, you can rattle throughout the season and you might only get some responses for maybe like one week out of the year. And that's just when that when, when that particular buck in earshot is in that jacked up mood and he's mad or or he's just has aggression. And so with a 
with a buck decoy, you're hoping for the same thing. I mean, you're hoping for, you know, maybe uh, another buck's curious, but why not, why not use a female decoy? Because, I mean, for, you know, more time of the season, a buck's hunting a doe as opposed to looking for a fight. Uh, bucks are not territorial. I know for, like, the longest time it was kind of believed they were, um, but I can't tell you how many biologists I've heard just repeated researchers that bucks are not territorial. Um, so that, that that's not in the wheelhouse, but during the pre-rut and rut, they are focused on one thing, and it's breeding, so why not use the female decoy. So what I like to do is just wait for that, wait, wait for that good type scenario where it's really based on wind. I like to have a little distance with my decoy to where like wherever I think the buck or a buck could come out, there's maybe at least 50 yards from where the closest he could get initially to lay eyes on the decoys, like 50 yards, any further is fine. But it, if, if it's a real tight spot, like 10, 15, 20 yards, it might startle them. Um, but I've had does feed off. I've had does and small bucks feed around that decoy. It does not bother them. That does not bother them. But if you have an idea about where a buck might be or coming from, and I know, and I know, I know during the rut, you know, bucks can just be everywhere, but you should, you know, if you know, if you know how deer move on the property, place the decoy out to where they can easily see it with some distance and then a key is 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 it with the right wind if you can somehow get a hunt that site with the right wind to where you use um whatever's legal in your state you know use a estrocent use a um a doe and heat doe urine i like estrocent uh, whatever's legal, I like to combine that with my decoy, not put it on the decoy, but hang it by or whatever to where that scent's out there because that scent is going to travel. They're going to be able to smell the scent farther than they can see the decoy. Get that scent out there. Maybe, maybe they can smell that estrus, and then all of a sudden they see that decoy. And maybe they're not too concerned about, well, why does that deer look a little bit different? Why is it a little bit – it's kind of gray. It's not brown or whatever else. Because they're already locked in on that scent. Um, sometimes I'll mix I'll mix in some some estrus bleak can calls, but that's really about it. And you know sometimes I'll have a buck that'll come in like a string. You know it's it's got his nose down, probably on the scent, and it just goes straight to the decoy. And, and other times they step out and and just look at it. And of course I have no clue what they're thinking. I don't know if they're if they realize that's not a deer. But at least they stopped, you know, enough to where I can get a shot off. So it's not something I don't use it all the time. It's just kind of when I feel like it's a it's a good setup um, to hunt with. But I've been surprised how little deer I have spooked with it. I figured I would have spooked a lot more deer. But but to be honest, deer don't really pay much attention to it, at least when I use it during the rut, which is the only time of year I've used it. Gotcha. This is kind of a part question I didn't really ask before, but I was going to say, uh, on your property, do you use much corn or do you hunt just food plots, natural food sources? And also, I know you're big on taking does late season. How can someone determine the right number of does that they need to take off their property? Um, so the first part of the question is yes. So we, we kind of do all the above. Um, we've got, we've got, you know, uh, you know, man-made traditional food plots. We've got, you know, native, native food plots so to speak 
and then we do use corn. Uh, we don't. We ditched our feeders a long time ago, um, and we'll put corn out. We have a feeder like on, on a on a back of a jeep that we'll use just to kind of keep the pressure down. Um, you know, just just to ride around, put corn out. The corn is something to where corn's a hot topic for, for a lot of people. I get that, you know, baiting deer, stuff like that. But, and I, and I know it's a double-edged sword, and I know what the rebuttal would be, but we're in an area with extreme deer density, and, and I know, Grant, where you live and where you hunt, there's, I mean, we've got densities in the low country in the lower part of South Carolina that are well over 100 deer deer per square mile i mean there's some areas that are over 200 deer per square mile that's not that's not unheard of clemson clemson university did a did a spotlight survey uh two years ago and it fluctuated in our county from 169 going i'm sorry the average was 169 uh deer per square mile um and the and the highest point was you know 229 so I say all that because using corn sometimes is a necessity to meet those antlerless deer goals to fill those tags. And if you didn't use corn or rifles, you're not going to meet it. Now, I know a lot of people are going to say, like, well, that corn is what's attracting more and keeping more on your property. But that's not really the case, in my opinion. It, that's the habitat work and the land management work is what's really building, build, build, building the population. So, yes – we do use corn and then the second part is trying to figure out how many does to take that's something where you know if someone was like brand new to a property like if they just bought a property or just got a hunting lease or hunting rights uh they're just stepping foot on it today and they were going to hunt it this fall there's a lot of stuff they can do to kind of figure out the population but unless they're going to hire someone for a spotlight survey you know you can you can get as close as you can. There's a lot of different tactics tactics you can use. A trail cam survey, doing it the right way, um, and just scouting and, and, and engaging with someone that really knows what they're doing. But the best way, in my opinion, I'm a I'm a student and a disciple of uh, QDM quality deer management, and just the true fundamentals of that. That um, that our brother started in Texas a long time ago and that Joe Hamilton brought over to the South, you know, back in the late eighties to, to, to start QDMA, which is now NDA. And wh where that gets you is when you go through that hunting season and if you're keeping a log and an observational log about what you see on the stand, bucks and does, fawns and bucks, and all those observations, and as far as how many times you sit, you got to log all that in, combined with when you when you have the harvest log, how much did how much did each doe weigh, pulling their jaw bones, uh, were they lactating? You know, you know, because it it means something. Were they lactating when you when you killed them in September? That's you know that's still normal. You know they're they're still kind of weaning off, off milk at that point. I mean, it's, it's kind of getting late, but if they're lactating in October, November, December, there's a problem. There's a big problem right there. They, they shouldn't be doing that. And that's a fawn that was born way too late. That tells you if you have too many fawns. Um, and uh, you had mentioned shooting does late. 
I was I was playing catch up this year and trying to fill and trying to meet our antlers deer uh, goals this past December. So in what's what's great about that is um, when you take a, a doe in December, not so much November, but in December, uh, Joe Hamilton, who I mentioned earlier, found a QDMA now in the He developed, I think in the early mid 80s, a fetus scale. And it looks very similar to, to like a fish ruler. Um, and it's completely black and white. You, you know, you're, you're skinning a doe. It has fetuses, one, two, or three, whatever. And you measure it. And right there on the scale, it's going to tell you roughly when that doe was conceived. So then you have the peak breeding right there. So that's a great tool right there to help you out. I mean, all these people talk about, you know, uh, different tactics to figure out, you know, when to kill a box. Well, that's that, in my opinion, that's the number one tactic to kill a buck. You, you know, kill, you know, a handful of does in December, measure the fetuses, meet your doe goals, and then you learn when, when they were conceived. And that tells you when you need to be in the woods. But all of that data I mentioned, the hunter observational log and the harvest log and then the fetus scale, you have that data, and there's a lot of different platforms out there, online, websites. A lot of them are very inexpensive, and you can plug all that data in, and they can give you your estimated fawn recruitment, how many, your, your buck-to-doe ratio, how many bucks you're seeing uh, per doe. So, for instance, if you're seeing one buck for every 10 or 15 or 20 does, you've got a problem. You've got way too many does. So when I mentioned QDMA, I'm sorry, QDM and being, you know, invested in those fundamentals, it's those fundamentals that really can give people the guidelines or really what they need to do on the property, how many does you need to take, um, your, your fawn recruitment. Like maybe you're recruiting a lot of fawns, like more fawns than typical. That's a good thing. Um, maybe you you have a very low fawn recruitment. If you have a very low low fawn recruitment, you probably need to work on. I shouldn't say probably. I guarantee that you need to work on your habitat. You probably have inadequate bedding habitat, fawning cover. The fawns are being picked off. They're they're not living. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can gain simply by taking a pen and a paper or using your phone and, and just jotting down what you see and the data after you kill a deer. And I, and I, and I mean, all of that comes together. And after you go through one season with that data, you're starting to build and you have, and, and you're in a much better place that second season. And, and every season after that starts to build, and then you can see trends. That's the other cool thing about it. You can start to see trends, whether it's, whether it's positive or negative. And like for us, we saw some negative trends. We were going through, we went through a period a while ago, many years ago, where we, where we were holding off for bucks. We didn't realize we were really doing it, but we were growing and we were capturing more bucks on trail camera. Well, that's a good thing, but if you have those trail camera photos and maybe you become a little too invested in, in killing them, you don't kill as many does. And then you can start to see 
the numbers and the butt though ratio really get out of whack. So that's, uh, I guess, a long way of explaining how we come up with how many does to shoot. No, that was that was great. Um, I was I was actually taking notes because we have a, we need to know how many does we need to take off of a property. <laughs> and I was sitting here, and I was like, man, I was like, I'm gonna have to call my uncle after this call and tell him we gotta do some things with a uh, little more data. It sounds like, but I mean that you know it it's something that we always talk about. It almost seems in every podcast there's a few topics we always send seem to trend to, um, which is one of them is documenting every year kind of what's going on, getting that data yeah. so you can kind of see those trends. I've never even thought about it like that with the you know, looking from when the fawn came to, you know, when you're peak, but obviously, you know, go back to the egg with the chicken. I mean, that's the best way to do it for sure. I, I can't believe I've never thought of that before. I've never, I don't think I've even heard that actually. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 um, it, it, it I shouldn't say like it's been lost in the shuffle, but like, uh, it's almost so simple to think about. Like, I feel like it's one of those things where yeah. it's so simple that you almost like look over it, you know? Well, and that's why, like, I mean, I meant, I talk about it a lot, but I don't want to, like, harp on it because I know a lot of people already know this. Like, it's not – some people know it, some people don't, but I feel like some people definitely overthink killing deer, you know, or, like, there's just so much goes into killing a big, giant buck and, you know, the wind, the moon, all this and that. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, it's not easy. Don't get me wrong because there's, there's a lot of seasons where I take the entire season – to put I, it takes entire season to put myself on a buck, so it's it's not easy, but sometimes like understanding, you know how to kill how to kill a buck in a property is not all that difficult, and that that's why I like I, a lot with Southeast Whitetail. I, I'm trying to really promote that you know like the, the science based you know approach to deer management and white white you know whitetail wildlife management. And then also the uh, the uh, QDM side, you know, QDM definitely, which which just stands for quality deer management, and that was a it's a philosophy, it's a mindset that started in Texas, and it was started by, by a biologist. And the main really, I should say the main reason why they did it, but it was they were running, they were operating deer herds like cattle herds. And if you read a lot of this, you know, literature and publications from the, the 70s out there, it was a very smart approach. It was a very just kind of business-like approach of knowing your deer population, you know, your estimated per square mile, and then having your fawn recruitment. And when you know your fawn recruitment, that's the percentage of the fawns that will survive from the time they're born until the fall. So, and that's the measurements that way because by the time they get the fall they're more likely to survive by that point uh, you know the first couple of weeks first couple of months or more you know there's who knows if they're gonna survive or not but when you know the percentage then you know how many are living so that's how many you should be killing every year not the fawns but the does or the bucks um so it, it you know and and all that ties into like you know what's your carrying capacity and sometimes I'm on a property where they're below carrying carrying capacity. That's not a bad thing. I mean, that can be good. And sometimes they're well above carrying capacity, and that can be horrible, and that can be really bad because if you don't understand, 
if you don't understand, I mean, my take on like, 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 like food plots, if you don't understand your deer herd or like how, if you have too many or too much or too less or whatever, you, you could be wasting time and money on food plots because if, if you have too many deer, like there's some areas of our farm where it's extremely, extremely hard to get a warm season food plot like soybeans established uh, before those wiped out because we have too many deer. And even if you burn your woods, when those soybeans pop up, they're going to be hammering it. So if you can't grow a good food plot, some people might say, oh, that, that's a great thing. I've got a ton of deer. Well, someone might have too many deer. And that starts to kind of, you know, people might see that it might eat themselves at a house and home, you know, meaning they might see that browse line. They might walk through the woods and see that distinct browse line where everything from three feet and down is gone because deer just eat it all. You see that kind of more so in like suburban, like residential areas where there's deer. Um, but when you're overpopulated, you can see some trends um in the in the in the deer population like me as a hunter i might not i might see them but biologists and researchers see them over time when like does for instance when they're going through when they're breeding and and when they're dropping generation after generation of fawns every single year and if they're in a poor habitat if they're in a poor habitat site they're not passing down the best genes they're not they're they're not giving the best genes and best genetics for that fawn to max out because they're in a poor habitat there's all kinds of stuff like that that, that we're learning about deer that's just really fascinating but it all it, i mean i can tie so much of that back into just knowing your deer herd and kind of having understanding about how many you have and you know you go you, you, you can also fit, you know throw in trapping I mean, some people might need a trap. I know a lot of times if people follow me on social media or my podcast, they might hear me talk about coyotes. I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not always looking to hunt them and trap them, but sometimes people need to do it because their habitat's bad and maybe they don't have good habitat and maybe they have a hunting lease and they can't create better habitat and just is what it is. Well, maybe trapping's a lot better for them, but if you have good habitat, trapping might be on the lower side of your totem lower on the totem pole of things to do um you know that's worth your time yeah i mean it definitely makes a huge difference i know when we get you know everyone has gotten a lot of people i don't want to say everyone because obviously working in the hunting industry i see more of it but um, now it's kind of starting to become cool again, I think, like turkey hunting. So yeah. hopefully that's something we can go – that's something I'll definitely get on board with. But we started getting real big into uh, more of you know killing raccoons and armadillos and possums and, and things like that, those nest predators. Um, and we noticed a huge turkey jump You know, as soon as we did that. I mean we were getting – I've never seen raccoons. We we used to joke around. We'd post it on on Facebook, and we'd take guesses at how big they thought people thought they were because they were just so big. And um, you know, we started doing that. And we noticed a huge difference. So that was something for us, for example, that you know, once we kind of seen, okay, we got some cameras out. We noticed there's more coons than anything else on the property. <laughs> there's an issue there, uh, especially because there's a lot of turkey nest over on the property. 
Um, so, you know, we've, I've jumped up, we have a sagebrush area where they lay nests and then there's a, an oak area, an oak flat that they lay in also. So, uh, once we figured that out, it was, it was a huge difference. So, um, I definitely can speak on the knowing your area for sure. We didn't have to worry about too much of anything else really, except that. Yeah, I, I, um, I think you're right. I mean, I, I guess I've never really expressed that myself, but after you said that, I think you are spot on with that, that we're seeing a lot more, uh, I would say predator hunting and trapping, D definitely trapping too, but like coyote hunting this time of year, trapping predators, trapping yotes and, and raccoons definitely have definitely picked up. It's been very refreshing. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure Grant knows I'm talking about. I know I know Grant's a big uh, turkey hunter, but the amount of um, you know turkey research that has been put out the past probably decade, but really probably the past the, the past five years, there's been a number of turkey researchers and biologists that have been stressing that they've been stressing the stuff for for a long time but but they but they finally been able to get traction right. you know with like with like state agencies and whatnot and they're putting out some great material and so i i was up at a farm a couple weeks ago trapping uh actually we weren't we weren't trapping my cousin brought a coon hound like he got into coon hunt coon coon hunting and he's got a legit coon hound and i've never done that kind of hunting i've run hog dogs you know ban ban those but um I tell you, that was a lot of fun, um, and it was something I wouldn't want to do during deer season to put the extra pressure on the deer, but that was a lot of fun to do running those coon hounds. Oh, yeah, for sure. They're definitely fun, and we, we grew up doing that type of hunting, but with bear dogs, and it was it was always fun. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it was definitely, definitely different types of hunting. That's that's one thing. So we didn't have, you were talking about dog hunting in the beginning. We didn't have dog hunting where I grew up except for bears. I think they had it, I think they had it more on the east coast of, of Virginia, but it wasn't over in the mountains. And uh, when I came down here to Florida, I seen how big it was down here in the south and definitely has its pros and cons. I mean, I definitely completely understand what you're saying about land management. Uh, from a public land standpoint, I love it because it runs all the predators out and we have an early turkey season. So our deer season slash turkey, all our big game season ends at the end of January for most places. Um, some I think northern Florida is February. Well, turkey season's March. So most of those predators don't make their way back um, as quick within that month. Obviously, I start seeing them on camera as soon as the birds are calling and stuff, but um, you get that little grace period if you can get out. So I always try to make sure that I don't care what I'm doing. That's my rut vacation. That's my <laughs> I'm out there trying to get out there that first week before all the predators mosey back in and you know realize that there ain't no dogs running around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. Makes sense. So, Mark, um, we're, we're a little over an hour here. Uh, we'd love to have you back on. We'll definitely do some uh, some other parts of this. Maybe we can dive into a few more specific uh, topics. I'm going to put this out to the server-side crew, and um, I'm definitely going to put a you know a, a, almost a questionnaire out with it to see if people would love to have you back on for more specific topics. But um, I guess the best way to close this out would be, I wanted to ask you, which we've touched on this, you've, you've mentioned it a few times, um, and obviously it's it's situational and I know all that, but for right now in February, if you could lend 
you know, a, a spot of advice to people out there that are getting into, you know, getting that property to the next level and getting it where their their uh, uh, QDA is. I'm sorry, QDM is, um, you know, where they want it to be. What would you kind of give them for that beginner advice for people that are just kind of getting started out into it? Um, if it's if I'm going to give advice for someone that that's starting to get into it this time of year, like right, you know, right about now, I would say I would suggest someone put on some comfortable boots, put on some waterproof boots and just walk your property. Walk it completely. I mean, unless someone already knows their property like the back of their hand, walk it right now because you probably are going to walk it during, you know, during the deer season or turkey season as, as much for the pressure. And then also, you know, come spring, summer, you know, it's, you, you can't see as much. Get out, walk your property right now. I say that because, like, that's what I love to do right now because I'll, I'll go in some areas, like this time of year, going back to it, I'll, I'll, I'll blast through some areas that I never go into. Like, there, there's a lot of areas where I only go into once a year unless maybe i'm trailing a deer like a blood trail going back in there i'll go in these sites one time a year it's right now where either i'm scouting or i'm looking for sheds or both and i tell you like it's hard for me to quantify that but like you can learn it's amazing what you can learn sometimes you'll find some heavy deer sign or turkey sign maybe you won't Maybe, maybe, I mean, there was a time where I, I had, I had a sanctuary, you know, on property and it, it's, it's kind of a general area. Well, it was a sanctuary for a little bit too long, meaning that we were still hunting around it and, you know, thinking of it, oh, well, this is a sanctuary. The deer are going to be in there. Well, if you don't have what the deer need or want, they're not going to be in there. So you go in these areas, you, you might notice there's there's no deer sign in here. They're not in here, or maybe it's a ton. So I, I would say that, you know, really just walk your property, pay attention. And um, while you're walking, if I can throw out one more thing, there are, there are all kinds of free apps, free apps for your phone for you to identify any kind of plant species, a grass, uh, a shrub, a tree, and, you know, native, invasive, whatever even insects or animals, whatever. I use that all the time. All you got to do is just open the app up, take a photo of the plant, and that'll tell you what it is. And then you look up what eats it. You know, will I, you know, quail eat that, turkey eat the seed, deer, whatever else. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't prefer it. Maybe, you know, then you know what to do with it. And I'm not saying that you have to learn everything so you can kill, the, you know, what deer don't eat. But, it's that's that that's that first step in knowing your land and then knowing the vegetation and then once you start to know, know the vegetation then it goes into do the deer actually eat it and then you're watching those plants grow you're in your timber and maybe you start to see you know snipped off plants you start to see snipped off plants you understand what they eat and there you go like you can kind of piece together where maybe where deer are and it just it's to me, I think that's a good foundation of someone's just breaking into QDM or managing the property. No, that was great. And, and, you know, I'm really glad you dove into a little more detail with that because that is a very common question I get. 
every year around this time for podcasts, even though we did go into it. Um, you went, you had a few uh, sections in here where you did go into it in depth, but um, it almost seems like at the end, I, I always uh, have noticed that we it's definitely got a lot more response when we kind of um, almost put it in different words, which you did. It was great. And I definitely appreciate it, man. I learned a ton of stuff. You are definitely a wealth of knowledge and I am really glad we met and we got to have you on today. Absolutely. I, I appreciate having, having me on. I mean, I, I, um, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Grant. And, uh, I mean, I, um, I could, if you couldn't tell, I could talk deer and land <laughs> habitat all day long. No, nothing, nothing wrong with that at all. And when me and Grant were talking, you know, normally a lot of the times when me and Grant talk and he's like, Hey, you know, let's talk with so-and-so. I, I definitely respect his uh, opinion because it's, it's normally someone pretty solid and, he definitely didn't. Uh, he came through on this one also. <laughs> oh, I thought you were gonna say, well, in March, nothing like that. <laughs> I thought you were teeing out like, you know, that's most gas. It marks me a lot different. So, you know, he's gonna say some wacky stuff. Just maybe. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But no, yeah, that's, um, not. I appreciate. I appreciate you having me on, and uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, Grant, did you have anything else, my friend? Uh, no, I think we covered it all, and just thanks again for coming on. I've definitely learned a lot, too, and be listening to it again, and we'll have to get you on about near the start of deer season again next year. Absolutely. I'd, I'd love to come come on, and, and Grant, I'd, I enjoy that conversation I had with you before we started rolling about beavers and trapping, um, and that's, that's, that's pretty interesting stuff, and that's something I will probably be in touch with you down the road with, I'm sure. Yeah, sounds good. Just let me know whenever. So, uh, Mark, where can our listeners reach you? What's the best way to reach you for your uh, socials or your platform? Um, I can be found um, on Instagram. My, my, uh, I'm at Mark Haslam and then at southeast.whitetail um, and also southeastwhitetail.com. That's, you know, I'm also on Facebook, but um i'm also on facebook i just facebook for whatever reason i just don't get as much you know instagram seems to be uh, other platforms seems to be more more engagement in in the hunting world but yeah um at mark haslam and southeast um dot whitetail and southeastwhitetail.com all right perfect man i'm gonna put that in the uh show notes so people can reach out to you and like we said we'll definitely be in touch and we'll get you on again when we get a little closer to deer season and and pick your brain of pick your brain a little bit more. Awesome. I appreciate that. Thanks, guys. All right. You guys have a good one and y'all are listening to Hunt Link by Service Side.